Hello and welcome to JLGB Virtual We Are Live. As part of JLGB's recent adjustments to the coronavirus lockdown, we have been helping parents and young people stay entertained and active all online. In order to adapt our delivery to the government restrictions, on the 23rd of March, we launched JLGB Virtual, which runs every Monday to Thursday evening. This is our way of ensuring that we can continue to delight, inform and entertain young people so that they can have some fun, learn new skills and make a difference. Sessions include skills like magic, upcycling and coding. Physical activities and the focus of this podcast series, interviews, with expert speakers from a range of backgrounds, including famous actors, social entrepreneurs, government ministers and many more. These interviews are run by young people like myself, so if you have any questions or want to get involved, please reach out to us on any social media platform. Just look for Judge BHQ and message us. We have so many exciting guests for you to listen to, and we hope you'll join us live very soon. For now, though, join us through our catalogue of guests. Today, we have our friends across the Youth United Foundation as we speak to the Minister for Civil Society, Baroness Diana Barron. Sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy. But now, tonight, in a very special night for JLGB for two reasons. Shortly, I will introduce our honoured guest. But firstly, before I do, all of us here tonight at JLGB are, br- are thrilled that tonight for this important occasion. And for the very first time in our 125 year history, we are joined this evening by our fellow youth representatives of the Youth United Network, the umbrella body of the National Uniformed Organization for Youth Charities. We'll hear from them later, but let's give a big hello to our fellow United Youth United members, the Scouts, Girl Guides, the Boys Brigade, the Girls Brigade, the Sea Cadets, the Fire Cadets, and St. John's Ambulance. Of course, they are all here to hear our very special guest tonight. And we are delighted that they will be part of our youth-led Q&A. Tonight's guest, Diana Barron, Baroness Barron, MBE, is a British charity campaigner, former hedge fund manager, and Conservative Party life peer. She is the founder of the domestic abuse charity, Safe Lives, and served as its chief executive from 2004 to 2017. In 2018, it was announced that she will be conferred as life peerage and she was created Baroness Baron of Bathwick and City of Bath. In July 2019, she was appointed Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for DCMS, better known as the Minister for Civil Society by Prime Minister Boris Johnson. The Minister for for Civil Society leads on the civil society agenda and is responsible for the Big Society Agenda, the National Citizenship Service, of which JLGB are proud to run, the government's youth policy, social action, charities, social enterprise, social investment, and the loneliness agenda. It's not every day you get to interview a government minister, and everyone at JLGB is delighted to to be here with us now. Ladies and gentlemen, I am truly honoured to welcome our very special guest, the <laughs> Civil Society, Baroness Diana Barron. 
Welcome, Baroness. How are you and what have you been doing to keep yourself positive during lockdown? Uh, well, it's a huge um, honour to be with you all, honestly. I mean that absolutely. And um, I feel slightly embarrassed by uh, your very generous introduction. Um, uh, what have I been doing to keep myself busy during lockdown, did you say? Yes, that was the question. Yeah, well, it's, I, I don't think um, I've ever worked as hard at any time in my career. Um, the, the task of trying to think through as a government how you respond to the absolutely seismic changes and huge challenge that we're facing has just been extraordinary. So um, I've been talking to a lot of different charities and people working in the field. I've been trying to stay close to what's really happening uh, locally and trying to work out in my areas of responsibility how we respond. That's brilliant to hear. Yeah, it must be a very, very crazy time at the moment in government, especially. It's a there's so much going on. Absolutely. Yeah. We are really pleased to have you on JLGB Virtual Programme tonight. We've been boosting positivity and keeping children and their families active and healthy for seven weeks now since lockdown began, with the help of the special guests helping us each evening. This must be an extremely busy time for you right now. So why is it important for you to join us this evening? Um, because I think um, that young people have got uh, an incredible role to play as we emerge from this uh, situation. You've got your futures ahead of you and we really must listen and understand what matters to you and try and respond to it. Um, so that's, if you like, from a policy level, just as a human level, it's just, you know, always inspiring to listen to and be challenged by uh, young people. And I'm sure this evening will be no different. Very kind words. Thank you. And it's so good to hear that um, someone in government really wants to listen to our young voices. It's really inspiring. Thank you. We're all about daily activities of daily. Sorry. We are all about daily acts of kindness here at JLGB. Um, and we always ask our guests what they've been doing to help others. Nationally, in your role, your daily life affects millions. But is there an act of kindness you've personally been doing to help someone in need during this pandemic? So I think the thing I've tried to do is ring up people. I try and ring a few people each week who maybe I've lost touch with or who I think might be uh, feeling lonely um, and actually particularly who I positively want to hear because there's I think nothing nicer than when someone rings you out of the blue and says I just wanted to hear your voice uh, mm. it touches us very all nice I think thing. at a very human level yeah certainly certainly for me um, I've been in contact quite a lot with an auntie who lives um, in Ireland and we've been speaking at least twice a week and it's very nice to um, get to speak to her which I have been doing more since lockdown um, so let's first go back to the very beginning tell us about your childhood growing up 
and the youth opportunities you yourself had that helped shape you? Um, well, I grew up uh, in Kent, really. I was born in London, but I grew up uh, in Kent. Mm. And I think um, I, I didn't get involved much. I think I went once to um, Brownies, but I think I got sacked on my first uh, visit. I spent a lot of time um, riding horses. Uh, which certainly uh, forms you in some ways. Um, but I'm, I was pretty much uh, a kind of um, good student. I worked very hard at school and had a very strict mother who made sure um, that I kept my nose to the academic grindstone. Mm. Yeah. I'm sure you can identify with that. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Um, yeah. Um, so you went on to become an investment banker and head fund manager. I guess that makes you good at maths and sharp with numbers? Uh, well, I, maths was always my worst thing, actually, at school. Really? But there's something about when you apply maths in um, uh, a sort of practical way that it became a lot more relevant to me. So I think people now might say I was reasonable at maths. Uh, but I certainly um, wasn't at school and I read history at university. So I would say I was better at languages. I was brought up, um, my mother was Hungarian um, and came to this country as a refugee in the war. Um, and I was always surrounded by people speaking different European languages. So that was mm. probably the thing I identified with most. Well, that's actually amazing. My grandma was from Hungary and she came here um, after the war. She also right. spoke languages, yes. Yeah. So my mum came in 1941 when um, Hungary was invaded by the Nazis. So she then came over here. Oh, fascinating. So um, you are a fundraiser and domestic abuse awareness charity, Save Lives and were the chief executive from 2004 to 2017. That's quite a switch from banking, from the banking world. Uh, what, prompted, <laughs> what prompted you to uh, make such a move and establish the charity? Uh, that's a great question. Well, I, um, I'd been in the city and uh, set up a hedge fund in the sort of early days, in the early 90s, when it was still uh, a kind of respectable and slightly edgy thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'd had four kids and um, wanted to do something a bit different. Uh, and I worked for a while advising philanthropists um, and people who gave money to charity about where they should give their money. And one of the first grants we made was to some children's charities. And I asked them if we hadn't given them this money, who should we have given it to? And my criteria were that it should be the biggest human issue that was the hardest to raise money for. And all of them independently said domestic abuse. So I went off and visited really? loads of domestic violence charities and just felt very strongly that uh, we needed a slightly different approach to it. So I set up Safe Lives. 
Wow, that's, that's a great story. So it's a true story. Really makes pardon? it even better. So it's a true story. It makes yeah, it even better. Yeah, the best ones. <laughs> so how many different charities all um, prompted to uh, give money towards um, domestic abuse awareness? How many separately? Well, I know that when we started, um, I remember somebody telling me that if you took the six largest domestic violence charities in the whole country, mm -hmm. the amount that they spent each year, or sorry, the amount they raised each year was less than a, a donkey sanctuary in the west of England. So yeah. it really was a very, very underfunded area. I'm pleased to say it's far from perfect now, but it's completely different, as I'm sure all of you are aware from the, just the discussions on the news about domestic mm. abuse during the lockdown and how incredibly difficult yeah. that is Especially also for young people living with it. Yeah. Wow, that, that's amazing. Um, so as your role in, as the Minister of Civil Society, um, could you possibly give us a brief um, description about what your role was before and how that has uh, changed um, during lockdown? Um, yeah, I'd love to do that. So um, when I came into the department, uh, my predecessor had worked on a kind of 10-year strategy. Um, so civil society includes charities, what we call social enterprises. So if you like businesses, but with a kind of social purpose. Yeah. Um, and um, and, and other wider organizations. Um, and I just felt that it was important to try and bring a bit of focus to it in the shorter term. So um, I said I was going to try and focus on three things. One was trying to build a sense of community um, in this country, of which I think charities and organizations like yours play a fantastic um, the important part uh, so but this was also in the context of Brexit in the sense that communities were very divided mm. um, north-south um, in terms of a whole load of tensions but also around Brexit um, so one was um, uh, building a sense of community the second thing was I felt we needed to focus much more on young people um, and the third thing was, although government gives away billions of pounds a year to charities, honestly, um, there are very few people who think we do it terribly well. So it mm. seems sort of sad that we give away so much money and people are still cross with us. So um, yeah. my three things were community, young people and money. That was pre-COVID. Um, um, during COVID, I guess those three things still feel really relevant, actually. Um, I probably spend more time worrying about the money at the moment because so many charities have been hit in terms of not being able to do fundraising events. Um, yeah. But I still think those are three really important priorities. I don't see a big reason to change them. No, certainly those are the three priorities that are amazing. Those are three really good priorities to have. Um, how have you felt that um, 
the community has come together, especially with the clapping every Thursday. Um, but do you think that because of coronavirus and everyone being on lockdown, people have been reaching out more and con connecting with their community more? Um, I think the answer is uh, absolutely yes. That doesn't mean that there aren't people who are in desperate need at the moment, but I think there are an awful lot of people who've got involved at a really, really local level. So uh, you'll be aware of all the kind of mutual aid groups that have popped out up almost street by street. There are mm. apps like Nextdoor, uh, which bring neighbours together. And I think what's been really fantastic to see is how local problems at a literally a street by street level are just sorted. So on the street I lived, you know, if something goes on our um, neighborhood WhatsApp group that somebody needs their shopping doing or medicine picking up or would someone come and talk to them through the window, literally there's a queue of about 20 people for every person uh, who needs help. So I think that's been fantastic, just the natural sort of ability of us as human beings to respond at a time of need. And I think the other thing is that all of us have felt pretty vulnerable at some point. I think it's very frightening when you feel, you know, you've lost some element of control over your life. And so, you know, whether that's not being able to go to school or not being able to go to work or being frightened about your health or the health of someone you care about, you know, those are all sort of pretty existential um, threats. And uh, I think feeling that you can help is a huge part of feeling better about all of this. But I don't want to make it sound like, um, you know, things are rosy in any way i'm just saying i think it's been an extraordinary uh response that we should be really proud of as a nation yeah i, I completely agree with that it's a nice way, way to sum it up um so as a former charity ceo and now minister for civil society you must have huge empathy for the charity sector and the benefit and the beneficiaries they support how do you feel that they are coping right now if you were still a charity leader and what help and support would you be asking yourself as minister? Uh, that's a great question. Well, I mean, really honestly, as a charity leader, I think most charity leaders will be feeling pretty worried at the moment because, mm. um, uh, you know, for many, their income has gone down, not for all, but, for many, their income has gone down, and uh, for some, demand has gone down, but for many, demand has gone up, um, and many are running absolutely essential services. So if you're running a hospice, for example, uh, you're very, very dependent typically on big fundraising events in the summer, and obviously those you know, aren't happening. Uh, we know that even, you know, the London Marathon on its own raises six to six million pounds um, mm. and that had to be cancelled. So I think one's worried financially and I think you're worried for your staff. So lots of charities have taken advantage where they can of the government's 
uh, what we call the furlough scheme where people um, can uh, uh, stop working but the government will pick up um, a significant part of their salary up to a certain mm. level but actually one's really worried about those people because pretty much everybody in the charity sector is there because they want to help and they want to contribute um, so of course it's better to be able to be paid and be at home but actually if I was still chief executive I'd be worrying about them but most importantly as you say you'd be worrying about your beneficiaries and I think charities have been extraordinarily agile in you know look at what you're doing tonight I mean it is just fantastic to think we're able to do this um, and many charities around the country have just pivoted uh, and are responding to what their community needs in a fantastic way I spoke to one of my favorite uh, phrases that I've heard over all of this was talking to someone who runs a small community um, uh, group and he said we want our response to be more like a candle than a match uh, meaning mm. you know we want to be there for people we don't want a great burst of energy and then be blown out so yeah. I think that's what people are trying to do and it's tough but really important yeah certainly that's a really good metaphor to have be a candle rather than a match and have the lights extend for a long period of time. Um, so tonight, as you know, we've all just been clapping outside our houses this evening, but only as a result of this pandemic. Doctors, nurses and frontline care workers are finally getting the recognition they truly deserve. But do you think that the roles charities play in civil society generally and right now during this crisis are really understood by the government? Um, I think the government um, has got a massive kind of bandwidth challenge. If you think of some of the decisions that government has had to take um, over the last few weeks, they really are extraordinary. So I think that, I, don't, I can't say every bit of government understands, but pretty much every MP uh, in Parliament has charities in their constituency that, that they know about and that they really value. Um, but equally, I absolutely recognise that sometimes it's hard to get the focus on the issues that charities are facing. And I know there was one day um, before lockdown where I was uh, feeling frustrated that I couldn't get more attention on something to do with charities. Uh, and one of my colleagues turned around to me and said, we did just take the decision to close schools today. And so I just think I'm, I'm not trying yeah. to make excuses at all. I'm just trying to give some sense of perspective that there are really extraordinary decisions being taken right now. Mm. There's only so much a government can do. Absolutely. And also, I think that, you know, some, I mean, government needs to be there at the moment in terms of funding and regulation and all the things we needed to do to try and facilitate life for charities um, for them to be able to continue and in the future thrive again but I'm just saying you know it, it is an extraordinary extraordinary time and often charities actually sort things out for themselves in a very agile way locally and i think that's to be celebrated too 
Yeah, certainly it is. Uh, so thank you very much for answering my questions. Um, we're now going to move on to the questions from other um, uh, people part of um, Youth United. So for our first youth question, we have Jamie Smokler from JLGB in Barnet. Hi, Jamie. Hi, uh, how are you, Jared? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So firstly, I just wanted to say a massive, massive thank you. I joined JLGB when I was 11 years old um, at a group funded by Youth United, and now I'm 17, so I've been there for six years now. I am very, very proud to be a part of JLGB, especially with the way that we have handled this situation and we're making history every single night, as Joel has mentioned. I've hosted JLGB virtual several times now, and I was lucky enough last week to interview a 96-year-old D-Day war veteran. Wow. Um, and the day before VE Day, which was absolutely fantastic. So that's a thank you to you and your department as your funding made that happen. My question well, for you is therefore quite straightforward. Why do you think investing in young people and their future is really, really important to you and the government? Um, well, because you're going to build the future for this nation and our relationship with the rest of the world. I think it is about the most important thing. Uh, that we can be thinking about after the safety of our citizens. You will have heard many people say in the daily press conferences and so on that a government's number one priority is the safety of its citizens and that is through at the moment predominantly a health lens but obviously also a kind of international security uh, lens but I would say the second most important thing uh, is young people and the future um, of our nation and that you should be given you know the opportunities that we had and more yeah I couldn't agree more I'm so grateful for all the opportunities that I've been given me and my friends we've all been given so many opportunities and it's true because students and young people these days we will be the future in years to come so it's up to us now to learn everything that everyone before us has left for us to learn and hopefully we can pass that on to the generations that are coming after us. Well, you're, I mean, both of you who I've spoken to so far, I think you should probably be running the government, but uh, uh, no, you, you know, you're obviously very thoughtful. I don't think I'm ready for that step yet, but maybe we'll <laughs> see soon. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jamie. Uh, we now move on to Keely Price, the JLGB National Youth Representative from JLGB in Kingston. Hello, Keely. Hi, Joel. Um, my question is about JLGB, and if not for its kosher and Shabbat-friendly provisions of everyday youth activity, myself and so many young people from faith and cultural backgrounds would accidentally be excluded from taking part in active role in British society, be it in weekly groups, DOV, volunteering, learning a musical instrument, and so many other opportunities as well as social economic disadvantages. Um, so my question is, do you think other barriers of participation are given enough thought by policymakers to make civil society truly inclusive? Um, I think that we struggle all the time to make sure that things are truly inclusive. So I think there's, um, you know, I mean, at the most boring level, you know, the equality law is completely straightforward and clear. 
But I also think in terms of hearts and minds, uh, you know, we do want uh, uh, equality of opportunity and that nobody should be excluded for whatever reason. But I think um, that for many people, they have a particular circle and a, and a group of people they feel confident with and a particular network. So um, I know that I am constantly having to remind myself about inclusivity and making sure that uh, all voices are heard and the activities aren't just technically accessible, but that you feel uh, genuinely that you can access them. And that's normally because there's somebody there who looks like you or eats like you or prays like you. Um, and that's very, very important. I did a podcast last week with um, uh, a BBC Sounds podcast called Next um, Episode about loneliness. And I was interviewed by a fantastic young woman. And she said that, that she looked at our loneliness strategy document and there was a picture of Theresa May talking to a very elderly lady and yet we know loneliness is most prevalent for young people so please keep prodding us we're doing our best but we are so far from perfect so uh, you know keep our feet to the fire thank you thanks so much Thank you very much, Keely. Thank you, thank you. I'm going to take my specs off because I can see a, a reflection in them. So I might not be able to see you now, but at least I don't have this reflection back at me. <laughs> okay. Um, so the next question comes from Abby Markovic, who is from JLGB in Redbridge. Hello, Abby. Hello. So this pandemic has been truly awful, especially for the elderly and those of high risk. Of course, they're the priority. But following from the Prime Minister's update this week, knowing that I won't be going back to school anytime soon, not knowing what will happen with my A-level exams next year and university plans has had a serious toll on mine and others' mental health. Do you think that enough focus is being given to young people and their mental health at this time? Uh, that's a great question. I guess the answer is it depends who you speak to. So whenever I speak to young people, mental health is absolutely always, always mentioned. Um, uh, I think that there has been a real recognition about how big an issue mental health is for all of us, but also for young people, and how linked mental health and physical health are. So they aren't um, separate issues. Quite a lot of work has gone on and funding gone into improving mental health um, services but I know that for young people formal mental health services often have a long waiting list. Um, I guess if we try and be glass half full about this you know I guess I, I would imagine you can tell me if I'm wrong but I imagine it's a bit easier at the moment to talk about how one's feeling. I certainly think I can say that I've felt vulnerable and wobbly and up and down and whatever you know, euphemisms we want to use for how we're feeling. And I think, and, and I hope that's true for young people as well, because part of the problem I think with this is if you feel you're on your own with it and there's nobody you can talk to. Um, and I know that there are some great resources um, online. I'm sure you're aware of some of them, but if not, we can um, 
share them afterwards than a range of different apps and things that you know people can independently um, access and confidentially if they don't want to talk more widely but I think we're extremely um, aware of it and again I think hearing from you directly about what you think is helpful um, uh, you know is is really useful for us thank you thank you thank you Abby we've got loads and loads of questions lined up tonight so we're going to move quickly on to a fellow Youth United network member we have we have a question from Daria Riach from the Boys Brigade. Hello, Daria. Hi, I've been part of the Boys Brigade for three years where I've built uh, strong relationships with my fellow friends and I've been joining with VB at home and Zoom meetings. So as you said, there's been a lot of news about young people not given a voice or consulted about coronavirus, especially in areas directly affecting us. How do you think young people can affect or influence the government's decision-making during this time? Um, well, I think um, it, we should start with the government. So I think the government uh, needs to make sure that we are trying to listen as much as possible. This is a two-way street. So I'm sure there's more young people can do, but there's also more that government can do and making sure that we're clear about this is a priority, I would say, is the first thing. I think the second thing is, you know, as you know, government is a big, clunky machine with lots of different pieces. And so coordinating your messages is really helpful. So when we get messages from groups of um, youth organisations, such as JLGB and others in your wider family, that's also really helpful for us. Um, and I think the other thing is help us with the solutions. So sometimes when you sit my side of the table, you hear a lot about what's wrong, but actually what's, and, and that is really important, but you will know better than uh, I will age 61, what's gonna work to help you and your peers. So don't be shy in coming up with what you what are practical solutions because that helps us a lot thank you thank you very much thank you daria from a wonderful organization that everyone knows and loves the scouts we have a question from luke patterson hello luke um hello joel thank you um, I'm proud to be a member um, of the Stouts, the largest youth organisation in the UK, um, and we train and equip um, nearly half a million young people um, with Stills for Life to improve them and to give them a better start in life. This pandemic has brought to the fore some of the issues that the charity sector has been facing for many, many years. Um, and unfortunately, um, many youth groups across the UK are forced with the inevitable inevitable decision of having to reduce sessions and reduce services or even having to close altogether. This obviously um, presents a huge risk to the personal development of young people um, right across the UK. Youth organisations um, are filling in the gaps where the government doesn't have services. The well-being, skills development 
and the social mobility of young people are on the line here. What can you and the government do to provide and champion um, specific financial support for the youth organisations and youth sector to prevent their collapse? So I guess the number um, one thing, obviously, in our minds is just to make sure that uh, we move forward in line with all the guidance that we're getting from the public health experts. Um, and it may be that some youth organisations, and actually it just is, that some youth organisations whose work can only be carried out face-to-face -face are going to have to furlough their staff. And that doesn't remove all their financial pressures, but it is some help to them. And nobody likes doing that, um, but it may be the only uh, option. We um, did announce before this an increase in funding um, for youth organisations. We announced what we call the Youth Investment Fund, which was £500 million over five years. And what we're looking at at the moment is um, our plans for that, taking into account everything that is going on at the moment. And I hope um, that we can update you on that before too long. Thank you very much. Thank you, Thank you, Luke. Great question. Now we move quickly on to Sydney Miller from JLGB in Boreham Wood. Hello. Hi, John. Um, so my question for you is, do you think we're going to have a summer? Um, like many others watching this evening, I'm currently booked to go on JLGB summer camp in August. But do you think that 700 people will be allowed to be together? Or do we just have to accept the fact that it may not be possible to run it this year? Well, I guess the truth is that today we simply don't know. Um, and as you, you know, can imagine, I don't know whether it's your first summer camp or whether you're a old hand at this, uh, but, you know, things like how do you get everybody there on coaches safely? It might be that you can all camp far apart in the field and all of that sort of thing, but meal times, you know, there are huge challenges um, around this. So the honest answer is that today we don't know um but we uh and, and we are all having to be incredibly creative about what can we do instead and it i'm sure won't replace that I mean, it sounds huge fun um that uh but um it, you know it, we will uh clarify as quickly as we can uh, but it certainly looks like a challenge from where we all sit today as i'm sure you understand yeah all right <laughs> thank you thanks thank you sydney next we have josh collins who is a jlgb young adult leader and former i will campaign ambassador um good evening uh first of all Hi thank there. Uh, baroness for speaking to us um so i've been involved with jlgb um my whole life uh well at least since i was very young and um, youth social action, it's literally, it's a part of our DNA. It's something we're brought up on. Um, but obviously, of course, with everything, we feel a bit snookered at the moment. We feel a bit grounded. So my question to you is how you think uh, youth social action can restart um, after the lockdown um, and whether um, young people will be the key players uh, especially as many elderly people will still have to shield for a longer time and also a sort of uh, follow-up uh, unrelated question just because I'm quite um, 
curious. I'd love to hear, um, of course, the Lords often gets a reputation, uh, um, sometimes unfavorably, sometimes not, as um, a place uh, that lots of uh, elderly people seem to be um, running um, and helping the country. Um, how have they and yourself been getting on and adapting to the more digital world that we live in now? Uh, okay, well, I'll try quickly uh, to answer both. Um, I mean, obviously, there's a great deal of variety um, in youth social action, and you rightly um, pick up the issue of some elderly people who are going to be isolated for a long time. Um, I guess to be um, sustainable, whatever you're doing has to feel rewarding and fun for you. We know that there is um, enormous value of different generations connecting for both generations. And I think the best kind of social action is when both parties feel like they get something out of it. It's not a one-way um, street. So I don't feel I can really give you the specifics, but I guess um, I would love to hear as you think about how you build your way through this, um, uh, what ideas you come up with. Um, and you will know very well, for example, when perhaps um, younger children go uh, back to school, you know, what opportunities that may or may not um, throw up. Certainly one of the things I've looked at is some of the research that came out after Hurricane Katrina um, and how, because again, young people were out of school for a long time there, not isolated in the way that we are. And a lot of it is the stuff that you would be doing. So lots of team building stuff out of doors, lots of small acts of kindness um, and lots of older children, young people helping younger ones. Um, which I think you said is in your um, DNA. So um, I think that's interesting because that also then translated into much better exam results, which I'm sure is something many of you are worrying about. Um, in relation to how the Lords is coping, well, I would be sacked, obviously, but there are some pretty priceless um, uh, WhatsApp groups and emails and um, uh, about, you know, peers who haven't yet got a mobile phone um, but actually uh, that is a tiny minority and remarkably the House of Lords has adjusted very well. You can watch proceedings now on Parliament TV um, and for the most part it runs pretty smoothly. Um, not as slick as you guys would be but but pretty good and you know remarkable because um, you're right, you know, it's a particular demographic, so uh, all of us can change and adapt under pressure. Thank you very much, Josh. Great questions. Um, for another amazing Youth United organisation, we have Laura Taylor from the Girls' Brigade. Hello, Laura. Hiya. Um, many youth groups meet in churches, synagogues and other places of worship which are currently closed. When they reopen, is it possible for young people to social distance when the purpose of our groups is to social mix? Also, if you overcome all that, there's the question of us all still being at risk without a vaccine. 
So when and how do you think we might be able to return to regular face-to-face -face youth activities? Um, so, uh, I mean, I think what we're trying to do um, on all of these things is take, as the Prime Minister said, baby steps. Because the thing we all dread, and I'm sure it's true for everybody who's on this call, is watching case numbers pick up again and feeling like we're going backwards rather than forwards. So it will be um, baby steps. And I think everybody would rather we left things a week or two too long than a week or two too short. Um, work is going on at the moment, just to give you an example, on some of the uh, approaches that are being taken in New Zealand around social bubbles, so how one family maybe can uh, be in the same bubble as another household, um, and how you then build on those bubbles. Um, and you're right that, you know, part of the point of your activity is to mix people up, but there will be bubbles like um, a group at school or um, a faith group, which maybe we can build on as we think about some of these activities, because it's the number of different people that we come into contact with, as you understand very well, that really matters. So, um, uh, and I guess the other thing that we are watching incredibly carefully is what other countries are doing so that we can learn from what works in other countries and try and apply it here. But, you know, it's, it's super frustrating, but I think we're all going to have to be very patient. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Now to Guy Sandler from JLGB in Birmingham. Hello, Guy. Hi, Joel. Um, so my question is, so everyone's talking about the new normal, but what do you think that actually means and what impact do you think that will have on everyday life in the future and possibly for years to come? Um, well, I fear that there isn't a single new normal. So um, what worries me is that for those people who uh, are reasonably well off, have got a garden or a balcony, live near a park, uh, and have got enough money, you know, there are certain aspects of the new normal that are, you know, pretty agreeable and you and you're surrounded hopefully by a family that you get on with and you've got space to move around in. Um, and I think that the contrast between that and those people who uh, are living with, you know, domestic abuse at home, who've got no space, who are incredibly worried uh, about the health of loved ones and who are financially under huge pressure, um, uh, is a very, very different experience. So I've, um, uh, I took um, part uh, a few weeks ago in a virtual iftar, um, which was a multi-faith event, but obviously uh, as part of Ramadan. And uh, I was really struck uh, for people in the Muslim community, just how this has impacted on them because of the high percentage of people who work in the health service, the high percentage of people who work, you know, on buses and in supermarkets and all of those sorts of roles. So I think 
um, I really don't want to end on a depressing note, but my thing that I think we have to stay very alert to is just how different the new normal has been for different people and how we have to be really sensitive and plan for that as we go forward, all of us individually and us as a government. Thanks a lot. Um, we have now a question from a very cool organisation. Here's Dan Moss from the Fire Cadets. Hi, thanks, Joel. Um, so I joined Fire Cadets back in 2016, and I'm now the Chief Fire Cadet for South Wales. Um, so it wasn't too long ago that social media was considered the scourge of society. Um, and considering the bad press that it's had over the years, be it cyberbullying, uh, body image and unrealistic filtered photos or abusive and hateful speech has digital connectivity now become an unsung hero uh, of this pandemic and is it what's keeping us all sane? Uh, well first of all congratulations on being uh, chief fire cadet that sounds very Thank impressive. Um, uh, so I think you make a really good point uh, I think it's been very easy to be critical of social media and we all know some, you know, it can be damaging and you gave some very good examples, but it has been an absolute lifeline for all of us um, and, you know, essential uh, part of communicating and our whole um, human experience. And actually there's some kind of interesting research that's coming out um, on sort of positive and negative use of social media and going back to the question about mental health, where can social media help and where can it hurt us? Um, and I think we need to be really alert to that. And I think yours is a great question because somehow, like many things, this has accelerated our need to understand social media because going back to the new normal question, that isn't going away. That is part, I think, of pretty much everybody's new normal. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dan. We're really thrilled to have so many Youth United reps here tonight. It's really something quite special. Here's a question from Ellie Tucker from the Sea Cadets. Good evening. Um, so I'm Ellie Tucker and I'm the first Sea Law Cadet for Southwest area of the Sea Cadet Corps. Um, if I may, I'd like to just briefly tell you about our wellbeing survey, which we recently carried out with all of our cadets across the country. 71% um, of our cadets said that they were well prepared by the cadets for um, tough times ahead, such as this lockdown. And 56% of our responses came from male cadets, which we know is something that's usually very uncommon amongst other youth organisations. And we feel that this shows uh, the sort of resilience and perseverance that cadets drives in people and that how cadets provides a safe space for people to attend um, away from their homes. 85% um, of our units are currently able to offer a um, variety of online training programs. However, um, there's still the running cost of being able to offer these online um, programs, but there is no fundraising able to happen and we are not receiving subs like um, weekly subs from cadets and also there's the second crisis that a lot of local units are not able to fund themselves anymore. Um, I'd just like to mention that the government are supporting 
small businesses in retaining their workers and being able to support their businesses. But how do we as youth organisations ensure that there will still be a seat that's in the future for both young people and adult workers? So, um, great question. So just to be clear, um, the government is not just supporting small businesses. It's also the same schemes that are available to businesses are available to charities like yours. And we've announced uh, a funding package specifically for charities. And it is really the only sector where government has done that in recognition exactly of the issues you say about how difficult um, it is to fundraise. Um, we've also supported and match funded um, the Big Night In, which was on the BBC a few weeks ago, which I imagine some of you may have um, watched or watched on uh, Catch Up, um, which uh, is, has raised, I think, over 35 million pounds so far and government is match funding that. So there is some funding out there, um, but I absolutely hear you about the pressure from not being able to do events. Although I would say there are some pretty amazing virtual marathons that are people are running. And obviously we've all seen uh, Captain Tom Moore um, doing his 100 laps. So. Um, I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying people are still being creative about how they do things. But can I just say well done on all those results? That's absolutely awesome. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, this next organisation has been amazing in championing and empowering young girls and women. Here's a question from Amanda Ameshi from Girl Guides. Hi, um, I'm really so I'm really happy to be here um, this evening, like representing the UK's leading charity for girls and young women across the country, across the country, and just following up on like what we've heard this evening about inclusion. Um, my question is: Are there any arrangements for people who need specialist specialist wheelchairs for sports that are stored indoors at clubs to be able to use them as part of their exercise? Oh wow. Um, that's a very specific question and I, I'm really sorry. I'm very happy to take another question from you, but I just don't know um, the answer to that, but we can get an answer for you uh, and I can send it in through uh, Guiding UK or whatever's the best way to get it to you. But if you want to ask me something else, I'm very happy to take that, if that's allowed by Joel. <laughs> of course. Um. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you anyway. Um, well, I didn't, I didn't actually have any other questions. That's all right, That's okay. Thank you very much. That's okay. I just didn't want you not to get an answer. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, we'll now move on to the next JLGB Young Adult Volunteer, former I Will Campaign Ambassador, Luke Levine. Uh, thanks, Joel. And hi, Baroness. Hope that you're doing well. Um, so. Many studies show hi that hi, sorry. Um, many studies show that transgender children having access to hormone blockers and counselling cut the statistics for transgender youth suicide rates in half. However, the Minister for Women and Equalities recently said that she wanted to cut healthcare for trans young people. Other than reversible hormone reversible hormone blockers, the medical intervention isn't available until the age of eighteen. 
Um, so what this means is that vital mental health support for transgender young people is going to be taken away. Um, as youth minister, do you think that this is going to be something that you would be able to look into? Um, I can certainly um, take that up with um, my colleagues who are responsible for that directly. It doesn't fall, you know, specifically as you understand under my brief. I'm very happy to take that away. Hopefully we can get your question written down so I get it absolutely right and then we'll follow up and come back to you. Great, that would be really amazing. Thank you. No, it's a pleasure. Thank you for your question. Um, this next organisation is one which we've been clapping up for alongside so many other frontline and care organisations. Here's a question for Luke Stevenson from the St John's Ambulance. Hello, thank you for having me. It is an honour to be here tonight. What's my first engagement with JLGB? So I joined St John Ambulance back in 2014 and I'm now the National Cadet of the Year. So I'm exceptionally proud to represent the leading first aid charity in the country an organisation that is supporting frontline efforts. So I'm particularly representing the youth of that organisation tonight, who I am so proud of, and I've seen them shine throughout the pandemic. So my question to you is, have you been impressed with the public response to acts of kindness and neighbourliness during this crisis? And what more do you think young people can be doing to help, not in the future, but right now? Um, well, the first bit's really easy because uh, I think I've personally been blown away by what I've seen both from uh, young people keen to help and probably a bit frustrated they can't do more, but also um, adults uh, helping. I mean, we saw the government appeal for 250,000 volunteers for the NHS and we got 750,000. Um, but what's talked about a bit less is how many hundreds of thousands of people have volunteered locally in their communities. So I think one of the challenges is how do we kind of bottle that, if you like, how do we keep that going and sustain it? And I know that organizations like St. John's are fantastic at that because of the training, the support, the fun you have and the sense you have of really contributing. Um, and as you say, there will be a long tail um, to all of this and I hope very much that we can put young people um, in a really crucial role within it. Thank you very much, thank you. And congratulations on being cadet of the year, it's also thank cool you. you guys. Thank you very much, thank you for your time and for your response, thanks. I'm sure you deserve it. <laughs> thank you Luke. Um, we have a final question from our youth panel. Uh, from a JLGB virtual audience regular who stayed up late in hope to ask a question this evening. We have Maya, who has just turned 10 and is from JLGB Juniors in Liverpool. Hello, Maya. Hi. Hi, Maya. Um, what is Boris Johnson like and what is he like to work with? Um, well, I I'm going to disappoint you, Maya, because I haven't actually spent time with him one-to-one. Uh, -one. I've spent a lot of time uh, with a number of the ministers um, with him, but I think the thing about him that I hope comes across is that he's very human. You know, he gets uh, what matters to us um, as people, whether 
uh, we live in the north of England, the south of England, uh, you know, whatever our uh, particular perspectives. I think he's a very good listener uh, and a very good communicator. So, and, and cares about uh, that people should feel they've got a bright future ahead of them, which is why calls like tonight and why your question is so important, because that's what we really hope for. Thank you. Thank you, Maya. Okay, just some final questions before you go, Diana. Thank you very much for uh, staying over nine o'clock. Um, to That's a pleasure. Um, some amazing questions there from such incredible young people, truly representing the best of society. Just three final questions, if I may. I heard a story, I'm not sure exactly, but your mother told you when you, were, when you turned 18 that she, in fact, herself was born Jewish and was herself a refugee in Britain. Are you happy to share her story? Yeah, I'm very happy to share it because um, it's just a sort of extraordinary uh, thing. So, you know, she was born in Budapest in 1918. Her father was an architect. Uh, she left uh, Hungary on the 5th of April, 1941, which was the day the Nazis invaded. Um, and uh, um, came on a sort of extraordinary journey through the Balkans, through Egypt, through Palestine, to this country. And if I'd been told that story about someone else and someone had said to me, you know, what religion do you think that person is? I would have said, well, they're obviously Jewish. I mean, why else would you leave the day the Germans invade? But actually, because she was my mother, and because to stay alive, she'd converted to Catholicism, it never occurred to me. And then on my 18th birthday, as you said, she said to me, I think you're old enough now to know this. Uh, and um, I remember thinking, oh my goodness, that just explains everything. Because I'd gone to a very, you know, middle-class English school. And I always felt I was, in a funny way, slightly different to everybody else because I think and you know many of you will recognize this but you know I was born a long time ago and at a time when I think as in a Jewish community having ambition for your daughters was absolutely normal it was normal that you would think your daughters would go to university whereas I think in the worlds that I grew up in many many of my uh, the girls I was at school with didn't go to university because it just wasn't expected. So I remember thinking, oh my goodness, this just explains everything. So there is something about one's identity that you can't kind of, you know, you can't get rid of if you like. It's rooted. Yeah. One of your questioners talked about something being in his DNA. You know, it's in our DNA. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was a uh, funny old thing really well oh, thank you really thank you very much for sharing that story it's really touching um not at all i went on a heritage trip to um budapest with the school as, as a i'm part of a jewish school it was really nice to uh go around budapest and see the whole jewish history it was really really nice um, yes well my grandfather um built the jewish cemetery he designed the jewish cemetery in budapest wow 
Is that symmetry? Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so my penultimate question, as we draw to a close, what gives you hope, Diana? Um, there's clearly a long road ahead, but do you think there will be positives to come out of this strange and unprecedented time we now live in? Um, I think the thing that gives me um, hope is hearing the solutions that people are working out for themselves um, in all sorts of communities around the UK. I mean, all of you who've been on tonight, honestly, you should be so proud of yourselves and all the people I'm sure who I wasn't able to talk to, I'm sure are the same. Um, it really is absolutely extraordinary. But the, the thing that gives me hope is when I talk to uh, local people in very different settings and hear how they're dealing with this and how creative they are, but most of all, how much they care about one another and how much, I think, I hope it's true for all of you that just feeling connected to the people around you is fantastically important. So my hope is that we don't lose that um, and that all of us can take it forward into whatever the world holds ahead. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, is there anything that you'd like to ask us as JLGB or as you uh, members of um, IT? Well, I think um, it's just a, a theme that's maybe it's not necessarily to answer right this minute, but um, a theme you've probably heard me say two or three times this evening is that we're keen to hear from you what you think some of the solutions are and they don't have to be great big huge grand solutions so if we take the question about social media you know if you guys have a real sense about what's helpful what's not helpful um, or any of the issues that have come up this evening but I think um, you know the detail of you know what you want what you care about what you aspire to um, and so I think please feel that the door is open and that certainly I'm listening uh, and we'll try and share your views as widely as I can. Thank you very much. It's nice to um, get to connect with someone uh, who is in government and really get to talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. Well, I'd be delighted when we're back to normal and you can come and visit if any of you wanted to come and uh, you know, observe a debate in the House of Lords and we could have tea. Um, I think I'm allowed six people at a time, so you can work it out. But I'd be very, very happy to welcome you and show you around if you haven't been already. That would be amazing. Thank you so much. Um, That's a pleasure. Our last question. Um, we always ask our guests to nominate and ask another public figure, celebrity or community leader to be a future guest on our programme and to help us and to help us delight, inform and entertain all the children and young people stuck at home. If you've enjoyed tonight's experience, is there anyone you think um, you can now pursue? Um, I know the entire youth sector through the hashtag Back Youth initiative has collectively written to the Prime Minister to speak to young people. Do you think he might follow you and join us on GLV Virtual? Uh, would you like, just... who would you like to nominate? Oh, wow. Uh, that's putting me um, 
on the spot. Am I, do I have to give an answer now? I, I don't want, I mean, I can give you an answer now, but I wasn't thinking of the Prime Minister. Um, I mean, I think we probably have to be realistic about his schedule, which doesn't mean he doesn't care. It just means he's got 8 million things, which are a lot less fun than being on your yeah, uh, virtual um, uh, evening. Um, am I allowed a moment to think and to write uh, write to you afterwards? Because I probably oh, yes, shouldn't um, nominate yeah. someone without checking with them. They're happy to do it. Of course. I will definitely send you a name. Thank you very much. Um, so that's it this evening. Thank you very much, Diana. If you it's had been a delight. Ago, pardon? It's been a delight. Brilliant. If you had said to me seven weeks ago, I'd be hosting a youth program interviewing a government minister, broadcasting live to thousands of people, quite frankly, I would think it'd be impossible. Um, <laughs> times are hard, and for those of all ages right now, but the fact that you have given your time this evening to listen to us all and answer the questions of not just JLGB members, but all of our friends across the Youth United Network, I am so very much appreciated. We know you are already doing the utmost to support young people, but we hope tonight we have inspired you to help even more and you'll be ever more determined to ensure that the great youth organizations that are so vital to us will have the resources they need to ride this public, this huge pandemic and well, as well in the future. Thank you very, very much, Minister. And we wish you and your family well and we hope to see you again soon. Big pleasure. Thank you so, so much. I've, I've really loved it. And good luck and, uh, to all of you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And that's it. Thank you to everyone for tuning in this evening and yet again being part of history. Thank you so much for listening to Jersey Virtual. We are live. Take care of yourselves and stay safe and we shall see you again soon.